Uh, we are in Isaiah 51. So if you will turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 51. As we continue through. You know there's only, what, 66 chapters in Isaiah, so we are getting near the end. Can you believe it? Amen. We're getting to some really, really good passages um, leading up to the famous Isaiah 53, um, wherein it seems like, the way I'm reading it, Isaiah is leading us to the cross. He's leading us to the hill of Calvary. If you don't have a Bible, we have them uh, in front of you. You should have some in the, in the rows in front of you you can use. Isaiah 51. This is a lengthy passage, so I will jump right in and read it all. Um, you can remain seated as I read. This is God's Word. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look to the earth, at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, and the Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering, There is none to guide her among all the sons she has born. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she's brought up. 
These two things have happened to you, and who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord your God, the Lord your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your, who have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. This is God's word. Would you please pray with me? Father, be with us as we contemplate your word, as we think about all that Isaiah has said. As many words, how do we make sense of it? Father, we need your help. We need the spirit to guide us to guide my words and to guide all of our hearts as we meditate upon it. Would you bless us and encourage us as we look to you, our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as I've said in the past, um, you know, as we're going through Isaiah, there's no way we can hit everything in Isaiah 51. There is just too much, right? So really think of this as a, a flyover of, of looking at Isaiah and trying to, I'm trying to glean the best I can out of Isaiah 51. So, so bear with me as we look at all of this together. And as you kind of look back at what we just read, look at the words, listen, look, and wake, and wake up. Um, I'm going to be pulling from those ideas that, that he is telling us that as God's people, that we're to listen to him, that we're to look to him, and that we're to wake up and, and lift ourselves up. You know, part of the difficulty with Isaiah is that there are many moving parts. You have multiple expectations of judgment, of what's going to happen to to Israel. You have multiple expectations and and multiple future horizons of redemption and where redemption is going to come. So you've got a people awaiting exile. right This is a prophecy about them going into exile. And then you've got him speaking from the perspective of them actually being in exile, being away from the promised land and being in God's judgment. And then you've got this idea of them being brought home. And then you have this idea of their sins being forgiven. That's what this stretch of 50 to 53 really is about, is that their iniquities are pardoned. Their sins are forgiven. And then you have an idea of them dwelling with God forever and ever. Um, how do you relate to all that? Right? That's the question we need to ask, is how, what do we have to do with any of this that's going on in Isaiah? Because it can seem so foreign, uh, especially when you read Hebrew, Hebrew poetry. How do we relate? Well, you know, in Peter, we're, we're going through Peter in youth, uh, our youth group. And in uh, 1 Peter, he, he calls us elect exiles. He calls the church elect exiles, chosen exiles. That we are, what does exile mean? It means you're away from your home. It means you're a stranger, you're a sojourner. And if he's calling believers that, then we can definitely relate to what Israel's going through, that they are going to be in, in, in exile, away from the promised land. And so in reality, we're just like the Israelites, away from our true home. Isaiah is here to remind us that we are chosen exiles, that we are elect, that we are called, but we are not in our true home. This world is not our home. And so the questions we need to ask ourselves is, are we getting too comfortable here? Are we, are we clinging too tightly to the things we have here, making too much of them? Are we finding our comfort and our hope 
in this world. When really we're in a time of waiting for something better. We're waiting for that better, that better future. So the main idea is this. If, that if we want lasting hope and lasting comfort in this life, we must listen, look, and lift ourselves up to receive the grace of the Lord. Right? Listen, look, and really this idea of lifting ourselves up is, is awake, like waken yourself. But of course, I, I want to use alliteration. So listen, look, and lift yourselves up to receive the grace of the Lord. First, we're going to look at listen. Look at verse 1. He says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. So right out of the gate, he's telling us to listen, to listen to him. So salvation, right, requires listening. If we're to, to be comforted, if we're to be saved, we have to listen. And he calls us, look, look what he calls us, listen, those who pursue righteousness. That's our label, that's our identity, those who are pursuing righteousness. Christians are those who want to be growing in righteousness. We should not be satisfied with where we are. We shouldn't just be, uh, be coasting along. We should be pursuing all our days, pursuing righteousness. We want to grow in our hatred for sin. We want to grow in our love for God and his law. We want to grow in love toward God and his goodness, righteousness, and mercy. And we will never stop this process. We should be pursuing. But, but if we're pursuing righteousness, how do we get there? How do we get there? Well, he gives us a clue here in the very next phrase. You who seek the Lord. That you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Righteousness comes from the Lord and is found in Jesus. And here I'm, I'm pointing back to last week. What did we learn about Jesus? That he, that he gives us his obedience. That his active, what he did to fulfill the law and his passive obedience, what he did to suffer in our place, he gives to us as we trust in him. That we're not just, it's not just that our, our uh, sins are washed away, although how awesome is that? But that we're given his righteousness. That we're given his righteousness. And so we seek the Lord in seeking righteousness. He's our righteousness. We discussed that last Sunday. And he was obedient where we fail. And he, and he does this for all who trust and believe in him, that the Lord is our righteousness. I'm going to skip a little bit down to other places where we see this give ear or hear. So look at verse 4. Give, we'll go back to verse uh, 3. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. Okay, he's got our attention. We're, we're to listen to him again. What is he saying? For a law which can also mean teaching, a law or teaching will go out from me and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. A law will go out from me, justice. And then if we read in verse 5, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, my arms will judge the peoples and the coastlands hope for me. So what is this about? Is this just about uh, obedience or the law that we're to obey that has gone out that we're to listen to? Should it include that? Yes, but really it's the totality of everything that God has said to us, all of his teaching, including his promises, and that we hope in. And so our principal job as believers is to hear the word of God, to digest it, to have it take root, to transform us, and to live it out in obedience. I'm reminded also in 1 Peter of what we've gone through in, in, in our youth group is, but you are a chosen race, he says in 1 Peter 2 a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
that we, one of our chief duties as believers is to proclaim the excellencies of God. So how do we do that if we don't have the word in our hearts? How do we, how do we proclaim the excellencies of God if we don't know what those excellencies are? We're to know his word, and this word is primarily the gospel. It's primarily the, the salvation of what Jesus has done to save us. So that's what we're to do. We're to be a listening people, hearing from the Lord. But the challenge is this. What is the challenge? The challenge is that the world is competing for your ear, believer. That the world is competing for your ear. It, 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 is, it is trying to tell you things all the time. I found this article, an interesting article by Thaddeus Williams, entitled, Self-Worship is the World's Fastest Growing Religion. Right? So not Islam, not, not Christianity. Self-worship is the fastest growing religion. He says in their recent book, Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons document that 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. Enjoying yourself. Further, 86% believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most. And 91% affirm the statement, to find yourself, look within yourself. In our day, he writes, the Westminster Catechism answer has been inverted. The chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy himself forever. One could even make a case that self-worship is the fastest growing religion. It's certainly the world's oldest. Think back to Genesis 3. Moreover, this religion lies beneath many of the most hot-button social and political issues of our day. A lot of the social and political issues right now are about this issue. It undergirds those issues. So, he lists six commandments. These are the six commandments of self-worship. Number one, your mind is the source and standard of truth. So no matter what, trust yourself. And I'm going I'm to say a hashtag. So if you don't know what a hashtag is, ask your grandkids or your, or your kids. Hashtag the answers are within. Right? That's, that's the hashtag. Commandment number two, your emotions are authoritative. So never question or let anyone else question your feelings. Hashtag follow your heart. We've heard that. Number three, you are sovereign. So flex your omnipotence and bend the universe around your dreams and desires. Hashtag live your truth. Number four, you are supreme. So always act according to your chief end to glorify and enjoy yourself forever. Hashtag YOLO, which means you only live once. Number five, you are the standard of goodness. So don't let anyone oppress you with the antiquated notion of being a sinner who needs grace. You are the standard of goodness. Hashtag never change. Number six, you are the creator. So use that limitless creative power to craft your own identity and your own purpose. Hashtag authenticity. Right? Be authentic. So this, this is a, a religion that, that exists. It is real. It is pervasive. But what's the problem? Why, why is this religion not a good one in the end? Besides the obvious being a rebellion against God. You see, the problem is this, he writes, when we try to be our own source of truth, we slowly drive ourselves crazy. When we try to be our own source of satisfaction, we become miserable wrecks. When we become our own standard of goodness and justice, we become obnoxiously self-righteous. When we seek self-glorification, we become more inglorious. 
Now, I want to be, I want to warn us. I mean, of course, many of you are right on that that's the way it is. That's the way people believe these days. But I want to warn ourselves of this, that this can easily become what we believe um, inadvertently. Right? Just by living in the culture, just by hearing it, just by listening to advertisements. Right? It's easy to breathe this in. And so we have to be warned to ourselves that we can be just like the people in 2 Timothy 4.3, where he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That we are not immune to believing in this religion of self-worship. It is pervasive and is everywhere. So we, we need to be, be warned not to fall into that trap, not to fall into that trap of listening more to the culture than to the Lord. So that's the first point. Listen, now we're going to look at, look, this idea that God is calling us to look. Look back at verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. So salvation not only requires listening, but it requires looking. Using our eyes to look to what he's telling us to look. Now, what are we to look at? The, the rock, the quarry from which you were dug, what is he really referring to? In verse 2, he unpacks that. He says, Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. So the first thing he's telling us to look is look behind. Look in the past. And specifically, he says, look to Abraham. He's telling the Israelites, look back to Abraham. Look back to Sarah. Look what I did for them. And what mainly is he trying to get them to remember is that God promised them. What did he promise? That they would become a nation. That Abraham would become a nation. And that the seed, right, the promised Messiah would come from this nation. And that the whole world would be blessed by this nation. They look back to God's promises. And why is this important for a nation that's about to go into exile? Well, they're about to be, become very few again. They're about to become a minority, small. And so what he's trying to teach them is that you started off small too. That Israel started off tiny, just a small family, but with big promises. that They trusted in God. So he's saying, look back, remember, remember Abraham. And for us, you and me, what that means is that God did not chart, uh, start the church with you. God did not start the church with me. God started the church thousands of years ago. And it started long before you and I were and will continue to be. It'll, long, it'll live long past us. So that should encourage us, I think. It encourages me that that, I, that it not all weighs upon me, but really that I get to be a part of the church. I get to, to grow up in the church and grow my family as we sing about the promises. I get to pass those promises on to my kids and be a part of this movement that God is doing. That it doesn't rely on me. Also, looking behind means for us, looking back to church history. Look at the people who died for the faith. Look at the people who believed in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution. I could, we could tell endless stories of the martyrs for the church who died for the faith. So look behind, he says, but also look ahead. Look at verse 3. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of of song. He's saying, look ahead to the new creation. Look ahead to the new creation. It'll be like Eden. 
Of course, Eden is in the past, so you're obviously looking back. But what he's saying is, this is going to be a new Eden. This is going to be better, with no chance of falling away, no chance of sin, no chance of the devil ruining everything. And we read about this in, in Revelation, when Jesus says that I'm making all things new. One of the most beautiful promises, that he is actively making all things new. You, you who are struggling with pain in your bodies, pain in your family, pain in your relationships, Jesus says, I'm making all things new. Do you believe that? As we look forward to the new creation, we have the tree of life in Eden. We'll have the tree of life again in Revelation. But do you know what the best thing about heaven is? Look at the end of verse 3 again. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving in the voice of song. Heaven will be the most joyful place imaginable. I mean, think of the most joyful experience you've ever had in this world. Times that by a thousand, and you're getting kind of close to what heaven is like. The joy that you're going to feel, the thanksgiving, the singing that you're going to have. Because God is there, and you get to dwell with him, looking at what he's done for you. So what can we look at now? We can look behind, we can look ahead. What can we look at now? Well, we can look to where God is working in our own lives and in the people around you. What can you praise God for? What do you see? How do you see God working in the people around you and in yourselves? Also, you can look to the world around you. Look at verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die like, in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. We went to, um, as I said, um, the beach last week or a week and a half ago on these retreats, uh, a marriage retreat and a pastor's retreat. And, and it was on the Outer Banks, and we had some beautiful, beautiful sunsets. And there's something about being at the beach or being in the mountains that you're just amazed at how big it is. You're in awe of it. And you just think, how big is the one who made all this? How much bigger than this? This is just a drop in the bucket, this ocean that I'm looking at. And this sunset that's turning from yellows to oranges to reds to pinks as it moves, how beautiful that is. And that he is the, he is the, creator, he is the one who created that. He's the artist. How amazing and how awesome is that creator? And that we were created for that all. I'm going to go back to this article by Thaddeus Williams, and he says, we were made to revere someone infinitely more interesting and awesome than ourselves. Talking back about why self-worship doesn't work. As Albert Einstein put it, a person first starts to live when he can live outside of himself. And the more self-absorbed we are, the less awe we experience. The less awe we experience, the less fully and freely ourselves we become. He says more than 35,000 people a year make the inconvenient trek to Nepal's Mount Everest. 4.5 million to the Grand Canyon, 3.5 to Yosemite, and 30 million to Niagara Falls. Deep down, we crave awe. We were made for it, and science is slowly catching up to this ancient biblical truth. He says that there's different studies that are showing uh, as they sort of uh, show people pictures of mountains or take them to locations, that as people do that, they felt, they felt smaller, they feel less self-important, and they behave in a more pro-social fashion. He says, awestruck people were more generous, more dialed into the needs of others, and more caring toward the natural world. 
uh, a study out of Arizona State finds that awe not only increases generous decision-making, it also drastically improves our cognition. He says there's a mountain of research from psychologists connecting experiences of awesomeness with a substantial decline in depression. And he finishes up with this. He says, if we're going to have a lasting countercultural effect on a society that has fallen for the cult of self-worship, then let's recenter our lives on, as Psalm 89 says, the God greatly to be feared and the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. If that is a way that we can teach our culture around us, that that's what we're created for, to get outside of yourself, to be amazed at the world around us and who God is. But again, there's a problem with looking, trying to look to God only, that the world's competing for your eyes. I don't have to really, I don't think I have to convince you guys that the world's competing for your eyes. We live in a, a day and age where everything is visual. right? We stare at little bright rectangles almost all day, most of us. Um, Trevor Sutton in in an article says um, this, 39,600. That's how many seconds per day the average American spends consuming media. That's 11 hours every day looking at smartphones, tablets, televisions, and laptops. The average American spends 11 hours a day looking at a screen, right? bright rectangle. Um, and, and so when we do that, when we're, when we're bombarded by visuals all day long, uh, we'll, we'll, I think, miss things that are more important. We're going to miss spiritual realities that we should be seeing when, you're, when your eyes are consumed with something. There's this interesting experiment. It's called the Gorilla Experiment, where people are watching this film, the study um, that people do, and and uh, they're looking at this video, and, and on the right side of the screen are people with, on black shirts, and the left side of the screen, people are in white shirts, and they're passing basketballs back and forth. And so the experiment is that they're supposed to count how many times the people in the black shirts pass the ball. So they have to watch three people passing balls. And now in the middle of that video, a gorilla walks through the middle of the, the room and kind of thumps his chest and then goes off to the left. And they ask people who saw the gorilla, and only about half the people see the gorilla because they're looking. They're looking so intently at what they're, what they're told to look at, but they don't see the gorilla walk through the screen. We miss the obvious things around us when our eyes are consumed with new things. When we're consumed with something that is taking all of our time and attention, we miss obvious things. And so it seems natural that if we're consumed with visuals, if we're consumed with movies and entertainment, we're going to miss spiritual truths. We're going to miss spiritual realities. I think back to Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, when he went to Athens. And he was amazed in Athens that the philosophers there would only spend their time talking about things that were new, that were novel, that it interested them. And they heard, they heard I mean, they wanted to hear what he said because what he said was new. But I think in our day, that we're consumed with only viewing things that are new. We've got to see more. That's the way social media is designed, that it's constantly new stuff you're scrolling through to see. And so we need to ask ourselves, what spiritual realities are we being blinded to? Psalm 119 says this, verse 37, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Christians should be the most worried about falling asleep to that visual malaise 
that's consuming our modern lives. And you know, I'm talking to myself here. Like there are times when I uh, should be working on a sermon or should be doing other things, and I'm distracted because it's there's so much at our fingertips now, entertainment-wise, uh, that can take us away from what we should be doing. So how do we get away from that? How do we wake up? And this is our last point here. So we've we've listened. Uh, we need to look, and then we need to lift our lift yourself up. And I say lift yourself up, but really what he's saying is wake up, get up. And here I'm looking at verse 17. Wake yourself, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord. Wake up. So salvation also requires staying awake. Staying awake. Have you ever thought about the fact that you're asleep for a third of your life? For 33% of our lives, we're unaware of what's going on. Uh, and it's probably more than that. If you think about the time you slept when you were a baby and then the time, how many naps you'll take when you're older. Um, just from what I've seen, older people like to take naps. So over 33% of our lives, we are not aware of what's going on. Sleep is, des- and it's like that for a reason, right? God designed it that way so that we realize we're not superhuman, that we can't do it. We're not godlike. And there's a time to sleep. This is important. God designed that. We need to sleep well. Sleep is important. But there's also a time to be awake. Right? We have to be awake to, what, come to church on time. We have to be awake to, to keep our jobs, to go to, to go to work. And you know what's so awesome about that idea that we sleep so much is that God stays awake even when we sleep. That he's awake. That he is listening. That he is looking. And we see that interesting statement in verse 9. He says, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. This isn't the Lord speaking. This is a prayer from God's people to God to stay awake. To awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. That we should pray that, that we should pray. That's a great model, that we should go back to Scripture and hold God to his word. The psalmists do that all the time where they tell God, remember your promises to me because life is hard and this is a confusing time and I'm struggling. Wake up. <laughs> and it's not a, uh, you're not being mad at God. You're just, you're saying, you're holding him to his promises. And look as that prayer continues in verse nine. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Who, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Now Rahab is, is Egypt. It's another word for Egypt that we see back in chapter 30. Who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? You see, this is almost like the psalmist recounting the deeds of the Lord and telling the Lord, wake up, Uh, come to our aid, help us. And remember what happened in Egypt. They had the plagues, the Passover, and then the Red Sea crossing. And so God is awake when we're sleeping. And we stop praying a lot of times, often because we think he's not listening. We doubt that he's listening. We doubt that he's caring. That's why we stop praying, that he's always listening. And we often think that he doesn't see what's going on in our lives, but he does. He does see. And perhaps one of the most interesting parts of this chapter is is in verse, uh, beginning in verse 18 and in verse uh, 19. Um, going to verse 19, actually, that these two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction and famine and sword. Who will comfort you? That this 
is really about consolation and comfort. That this is what the Lord is doing. He is trying to comfort and console his people. This is a, a word of love to his children who are about to go through something very, very difficult. Back in verse 17, he says that you are at Jerusalem. You've drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl. He's given them the cup of wrath. He's given them the cup of wrath, but he's not, he's not going to keep it there. Look at verse 22. Thus says the Lord, your Lord, the Lord, the God who pleads the cause of his people, that he has not left them. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors. You see, Israel had been forced to drink a bitter cup for all their sins, exile. You have to go. You will be banished from the land. And they're helpless and they're beat down. But he's promising something, that that cup is going to be given to the enemies of God. And it's the Lord that pleads their cause. But what's, what's, what's most important, and this is partially why I asked George to read from Matthew 26, is that where does that cup have to go? Where does that cup have to go through before it gets to our enemies? The cup has to be handed to Jesus. The cup has to pass through his lips. That He has to drink the cup before the cup goes to our enemies. Remember what happened at the cross. Jesus spoke of the same cup. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And remember in that scene, he's telling the disciples to stay awake and they're falling asleep. So at the, very, at the very moment where he needed encouragement, the moment where he needed them to stay awake, they fell asleep. And how often are we asleep? But he's still working. He's still saving. And this, this is a picture of um, the satisfaction of God's wrath. That, that the issue here is that God's wrath towards us sinners must be satisfied. It must be appeased. We use the theological term propitiated. That God's wrath must be taken away, appeased. And it had to be done through Jesus' perfect obedience for us. He received the cup of God's wrath. For you who believe and me, you see the unbelieving world, the world who rejects God, will also receive that cup. Our, Our enemies. But Jesus took it from his people and drank it himself, that that he takes it from us and drinks it himself, that he stands in the place where we should have died as our substitute. You see, the marvel of God's grace and and the cross is that one man, just one man, drained the cup of God's wrath that should have taken an eternity for him to pour out on us. Amazing grace. I'm going to end with this final story, picture of the substitution, substitutionary death. Two brothers, this is uh, from Brian Chappell's book, Each for the Other. Two brothers decided to play on sandbanks by the river's edge because our town depends on the river for commerce. Dredges regularly clear its channels of sand and deposit it in great mounds beside the river. Nothing is more fun for children than playing on these mountainous sand piles. And few things are more dangerous. And while the sand is still wet from the river's bottom, the dredges dump it on the shore and piles of sand dry with rigid crusts that often conceal cavernous internal voids formed by the escaping water. If a child climbs on a mound of sand, 
that has such a hidden void, the external surface easily collapses into the cavern, and sand from the higher on the mound then rushes into the void, trapping the child in a sinkhole of loose sand. This is exactly what happened to the two brothers as they raced up one of the larger mounds. When the boys did not return home for dinner time, family and neighbors organized a search. And they found the younger brother. Only his head and shoulders protruded from the mound, and he was unconscious because of the pressure of the sand on his body. And the searchers began digging frantically, and when they cleared the sand to his waist, he roused to consciousness. Where is your brother? The rescue shouted. And the younger brother replied, I'm standing on his shoulders. And with the sacrifice of his own life, the older brother had lifted the younger to safety. Friends, that's what Christ did for us. That we're standing on his shoulders and that he was crushed and not us. And so let Christ's love encourage you this morning. Let it encourage us to not give up when it gets discouraging, to be comforted and to listen and to look and to lift ourselves up, not to earn our salvation, not, to, not, to, not based on our obedience, but to receive his grace for what he did on the cross to save us where he died so that we could live. Let's pray. Father, amazing grace you poured out for us. And we see it so clearly in Jesus. We see it so clearly on, on the cross that lifted our heads above the sand so that we could live as he died. Father, may we be encouraged to continue in this day of confusion and uh, where we see so much sin in the world, but in our own hearts. We're so tempted to hear the world, to look at the world, and to run from you, our source of truth and our source of goodness and righteousness. So bless us, Father, as we continue. Give us strong community to build us up, brothers and sisters in Christ, to continue this race. Bless us and keep us in Jesus' name. Amen.